Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Prue. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Recovered from your cold? Getting there. Getting there. It's been lingering. <laughs> it's not good. Not good to have a cold at all at this time of year. When we've come to the end of 2023, so the theme for our podcast this week is a wrap-up of key trade policy developments in 2023. There are couple of key themes to have come out of the year. Certainly ongoing uncertainty is impacting Australia's and global trade, as well as increased government intervention for national security and climate change reasons, trying to achieve policy outcomes in those two areas. The podcast today, I think we're going to look at the key developments in Australia's trade policy, broken up into sort of three general groups. One, looking at China because it's such a dominant part of global trade, then looking at Australia's FTA dance card and what the winners, the losers and what the unfinished business is on that dance card, and then looking at another key issue, which is climate change and how that's impacted trade policy this year, and ending with ongoing tensions in the Middle East and in Ukraine and and how that's impacting on trade. So Starting off with China, as I said, it's such a dominant player in the global economy. That said, 2023 saw significant thawing in the Australia-China trade relationship. We saw tariffs on barley removed, on timber. The timber trade opened up. Coal trade started to flow again. Barriers on a number of other products were lifted. But that said, we still have tariffs remaining on wine exports to China, on lobster. In just this month, we've had suspensions lifted on three Australian meat export facilities, but suspensions remain on another eight. So while there's definitely been a thawing in the trade relationship, you cannot say trade is back to what it was prior to China imposing these barriers on Australia's exports. Yeah, I think that's right, Prue. In a sense, the Chinese have made some concessions. Australia didn't need to do much because we were not the source of the coercion. (laughs) That that was always the Chinese. We're getting back to something like pre-coercion days, but there's still some way to go, I think. And that's also a function of the broader China-US relationship, of course. And there's been some thawing, I would say, at the geopolitical level, but not yet on the trade front where significant trade barriers and restrictions remain in place on both sides, both in terms of import barriers, uh, tariffs particularly, but also export restrictions and FDI restrictions. So there's there's still significant friction in the system, um, significant tension. At the higher politics level, Things are easing a little bit, but I hold to my longer-term forecast that this is an upwards oscillation and an otherwise downwards long-term trajectory. So I suspect it will be more of the same in 2024. 
think you're right. There are absolutely have been green shoots, but in that broader US-China trade relationship context, yeah, there are definitely ongoing tensions. I mean, US tariffs on Chinese goods remain at 19%. Chinese tariffs on US goods remain at 21%. And those tariff levels are incredibly high and having material impact on both of those economies. But again, just getting back to Australia, I do think the ability for us to get back to the kind of trade relationship we had with China before they imposed those barriers will be extremely difficult just because of the uncertainty now. And the government very much is continuing, the Australian government is very much continuing to encourage exporters to diversify, not to put all their eggs in the China basket because of what's happened. So whether we will ever see the kind of trade relationship we had, the growth we had in our trade relationship with China prior to these trade barriers being implemented, it's something for the future, but I find it really hard to believe that we'll, we'll get back there anytime soon. And I think it's something further impacting the trade relationship Australia has with China, but also China's place in the global economy. And that is what's happening internally within China. We're seeing the Chinese economy facing real headwinds. They've got ongoing structural problems. Foreign investment has fallen. We're seeing capital outflows from China radically increase, high youth unemployment. And the Chinese government's attempt to shift their economy from being export-led to being consumer-led is hitting major barriers with the Chinese people simply not spending their uncertainty within that economy means people aren't spending. So that shift is really just not happening. And on top of that, they've got the property bubble, which is compounding everything. So absolutely a topic to continue looking at in 2024. But I, I just admire your optimism, Peter. Well, just to qualify that for a moment. So if we start from the high point pre-China coercion of Australia, and then we are are now at some low point. In between, there's a lot of space, right? And there's been a substantial decrease in trade as a result of that coercion. So the upwards oscillation I was referring to is a little heartbeat from that low level. Now, I don't think that's optimistic. Within the broader context of the geopolitical relationship, it provides a measure of optimism. But as I said, the overall trajectory is down. So I'm not positive about the long-term outlooks. I think it's important just to qualify that. But for all the reasons you just mentioned, what's going on in the Chinese economy, which is serious, I think, and there's a lot of structural change and the need for structural reforms that's built up in the Chinese economy that's gone unaddressed, simply because the CCP government has prioritized security over economics, but they can't ignore these structural reform tensions forever. And I think that is propelling them to reconsider their global integration and footprint, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the West. And we're seeing very similar tensions in their relations with Europe, a very significant trading and investment partner for them. The US, I think they regard not necessarily as lost, but that situation is certainly irretrievable in the short to medium term. Australia is a very important Western economy in the Asian context. So I do think, and certainly from my discussions in Beijing, and you were there recently as well, that 
the economic reformer camp is increasingly agitating that something be done and that they at the Chinese level, the domestic level. So those pressures will continue to build. And I think that will lead to a continued series of stop-start measures on the part of the communist government, both to reform, but also to reach out to Western economies to try and prize open the levers of commerce to help them with, with the transition that they need to make. And that's going to be a real tension in Chinese trade policy for the foreseeable future, I think. Yes. China's not going anywhere. And if it does well, we actually want it to do well, economically and politically. If it does badly, either either outcome is going to have implications for us. So obviously will be a key topic for us again next year. But putting China aside, obviously Australia hasn't stood still. We've tried to improve trade relations with a range of countries. And Australia tends to rely on its free trade agreement and formal negotiations to do that. So I see in terms of Australia's trade policy dance card, I've got a couple of agreements that I think were winners. And on top of that list, I'd probably put entry into force of the UK-Australia Free Trade Agreement. That was a really comprehensive, ambitious agreement. It was important for Australia, very important for the UK. It was its first agreement outside its recycling of its EU agreements. So a very important agreement. The impact of the UK FTA since entering into force, it's still quite early days, it entered into force in May. So we've seen some early indicators, but I would say across the board, it's very hard at this early stage to identify major change in our trade with the UK, maybe for wheat, but whether that had as much to do with the bumpy years we've had recently than it is with the FTAs is unclear. But nevertheless, a really comprehensive, strong FTA. So for me, that's a real winner. I completely agree. And of course, thinking about an existing regional agreement that the UK joined, which is the CPTPP, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. There, I managed to just roll it off my tongue. So the UK joined last year and has been bedding down its access this year, and of course, looking to next year, there's a queue of countries waiting to join. And that will make for some interesting headlines. So China, that we were just talking about, Taiwan, of course, and Ukraine, very interestingly, amongst other applicants and an increasing queue, potentially, of, of other applicants. So for me, CPTPP is also a bit of an unsung success story. It remains the gold standard trade agreement in, in our regional trade relationships. No, I agree. CPTPP still offers great promise. And of course, we live in hope, which I think is, is pretty much a dead hope that the US will rejoin. But you never know. Pretty clear they're not coming back in anytime soon. And they've put on the tail another agreement that we'll get to shortly. But what else is on your list of, of winners, Britt? So I thought also entry into force, which was actually the 29th of December 2022, but I'm going to claim it for 2023, of the sort of the first cut agreement of Australia's agreement with India. So the India-Australia Economic Cooperation Trade Agreement, which was supposed to be an early harvest agreement, but we're actually seeing some great outcomes already from that agreement. Radical increase in Australia's fish exports to India, increases in lobster from a small base, admittedly, but some of those early 
increases in trade just show the scope of accessing the Indian market. It's so big. So even a tiny increase into India can result in really major economic gains for both for Australia in particular, but also I think India benefits from allowing greater imports into its market for the reason why we think it's great that Australia has an open market. Yeah, for me, that early, that first harvest trade agreement with India was a big winner. I completely agree. And from the standpoint of diversification of our trade relations and thinking markets of scale that could potentially replace China to some extent, in our region, it's really just India that has that potential. And their trade policy has moved in a more favorable direction. I think every trade policy analyst knows that India is an extremely tough market to crack. But when it comes to their FTA strategy, there's a much more ambitious template on the table. There's been some backsliding in recent months, but by and large, I think the reform trajectory is on track. And that makes it much more interesting, and particularly for the phase two of the agreement that is still underway, and that's a topic for next year, I think. But there we will hopefully see market access broaden into services, uh, particularly amongst other things. Yes, services is a real priority for India too in terms of getting workers and also accessing their huge IT sector, which I think is you know, globally recognised for their strengths in, in IT. So, yeah, another one to watch. So, for me, they're the key winners. In terms of the losers, I think the EU FTA has to be the standout in terms of the losers. Not that the agreement is dead, but there were real hopes that it would be concluded this year. And when Minister Farrell went to Europe, there was a real expectation that he was there just to tick the box and finalise the agreement and, and bring it home. So when he didn't, that was a shock. Yes, and I think I, I completely agree. I would also put it in the loser category for this year, but I remain optimistic that once they've got beyond their parliamentary elections and we've got beyond our next election cycle, so maybe in two years' time, we will have a concluded free trade agreement. And just to put it in context, Mercosur, the countries of South America, led by Brazil in particular, have also been trying to conclude a free trade agreement with Europe for a very long time. And it's broken down over two issues, one of which is very familiar to Australians, which is agricultural market access. So Brazil, a major agricultural exporter, Argentina as well, but also the sustainability agenda. And what's interesting there and maybe this is less grounds for optimism, I suppose, from an Australian point of view, is that the Lula administration is much more embracing of the sustainability agenda than its predecessor, yet still can't get to yes with, with the Europeans. So I think there's something in European trade policy, actually, that needs to shift if they're serious about diversifying their trade relationships, and particularly into this part of the world. Mm. I've heard different things about what it was actually in the Australia-EU FTA that held it up. It's ranged from obviously agricultural market access, the sense that the Europeans weren't offering enough. But on top of that, I understand this is all secondhand gossip that I'm sharing with you on Trade Policy Decoded, Peter, that there were additional conditions that the Europeans wanted Australian beef exporters in particular to meet that could potentially result in worse trade access for Australian beef exporters to dual pricing for critical minerals, to labour market testing. So I think 
there might be a few more barriers to overcome, but I agree. I hope they'll re-engage as soon as the European elections are done and we can really get into the teeth because it's a huge market. It's It offers so much more than just access for goods. And as we've said a couple of times in this trade podcast, anything that reinforces the value and the importance of rules underpinning global trade is, is a good thing. So let's keep our eyes on EU FTA next year. And I think, I'm not sure whether you'd agree with me or not, Peter, but the WTO was a loser this year. Ngozi made a really good effort to highlight that the world should actually be re-globalising, that we should be increasing globalisation rather than de-risking and decoupling. And I think she made some incredibly strong arguments for that, but no one seemed to be listening. Yes, they didn't deliver much this year, and they're building up to their ministerial conference in Abu Dhabi in February next year. So we'll talk about that early next year, I think. That's really focused on reform and a a few key deliverables, such as the fisheries subsidies agreement, which really still has to get over the line. I retain some optimism, a small measure of optimism. I'm the optimistic one on this podcast that there will be some kind of deal to revive and reform the dispute settlement system, and not least because the one glimmer of hope that I took out of when I was there earlier this year is that the Americans have sponsored, in effect, a really substantive discussion about what kind of dispute settlement system WTO will have going forward. And previously, the Americans were just disengaged from that conversation. Now they are engaged in it, but of course, there's very tricky obstacles that remain. That's for next year, though, not this year. So I agree. This year, I would put them in the the naughty chair. They they didn't deliver enough. (laughs) On the regional stage, one that we should talk about a little bit, I think a bit of a success story, is the the refreshed ANSPATAM, ASEAN Australia New Zealand Free Trade Agreement. So that was reviewed and refreshed and updated. That connects into the implementation of the RCEP free trade agreement, which is coming into force, as we know. At the centre of both is ASEAN, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. I think very often RCEP is confused as a China and others agreement. Actually, it's an ASEAN-centric agreement, and many people miss that about the nature of RCEP. But then wrapping that all together is Australia's Southeast Asia economic strategy that was also launched this year. And we'll have an interview with Nicholas Moore next year that we certainly are looking forward to. So there's quite a lot going on in that Southeast Asia space that's been pretty positive this year, I think, on the trade front. Okay, I'm happy to put that in the winner category. (laughs) Work on Southeast Asia. So then that leaves us with unfinished business. There's quite a bit of that. For me, IPEF is unfinished. I have to say the supply chain agreement, which is the only text that we have out of all of the IPEF negotiations so far, was a bit of a disappointment. But they have substantially concluded the clean economy agreement and the fair economy agreement to other pillars of the four IPEF pillars. We're still waiting for the trade pillar, pillar one, but we don't have text for those agreements. So we don't know what's in them. We don't know how binding or effective or or far reaching they might be in those two areas of the clean economy and the fair economy, which deals mostly with anti-corruption and tax cooperation. 
So for me, they're still in the unfinished business. Of course, we've got a US election coming up next year, and I think that makes all of this trade negotiation area so difficult for the US to try and progress. I know they really sped up negotiations to try and get everything done this year so they would avoid the election next year. So what impact that's going to have on progress in IPEF is unclear. My sense is things will slow down. But hopefully we'll at least see the the text of these other two pillars and be able to make some sort of call on whether they're they're useful or not. Completely agree. So I'm reminded of Churchill's famous saying that to jaw jaw is better than to war war. And IPEF kind of fits into that category. It's a cooperative agreement. It's not a trade agreement per se, although it does have a trade pillar. But I think that one's really been kicked into touch owing to domestic US political economy frictions over the treatment of digital trade in in particular, amongst other things. Maybe we should also mention, I'm not sure where we'd put it, it's not an agreement, but APEC did have a successful summit. Xi Jinping did go, he met with Biden. That was a significant diplomatic breakthrough, I think, in the US-China relationship, and it was APEC that brought them together. So that at least is a success for APEC. But in terms of substantive achievements, again, APEC is a cooperative forum. It's not a, an agreement-making forum per se, although it does sometimes deliver some agreements. So let, let's not forget about APEC, I guess, would be my point. And then the final one I would just want to throw in, but this, this is a conversation for next year, is the Pacific also very important in Australia's regional trade diplomacy. So this year, we've been betting down the PESA Plus agreement. And there have been some interesting signals from Fiji. So the two outliers in terms of the Pacific, really, uh, non-members are Fiji and PNG. And Fiji's been making some interesting noises about potentially exceeding to PESA Plus, which would be a real plus, if you'll excuse the pun, if it does join next year. But in terms of Australia's regional diplomacy, ASEAN and the Pacific have been front and centre. And those are really the two landmark trade agreements, the ASEAN set and then the PESA Plus agreement. And it makes a lot of sense for Australia to focus on those two regions, considering their proximity, but also their importance to us on a number of strategic fronts. So then I guess in terms of further unfinished business, it's sort of a bit puzzling that we have the Australian government's announced the launch of trade negotiations with the United Arab Emirates. So I mean, that's great in terms of wanting to, again, promote rules and openness between markets. That's really important. But the UAE is pretty small. We don't do a lot of trade with the UAE. The tariffs are already at 5%. They're not, we're not talking big tariff barriers here. Investments of interest, obviously. Australia is looking to attract UAE investment into Australia generally, but particularly the clean technology sector. So that's something that's going to progress next year um, after the minister announced it just on the 13th of December, a couple of days ago. So that's further unfinished business. And then the final one for me is phase two agreement with India. That's further unfinished business. I'm really sceptical we're going to be able to get. This is normally I'm quite a half glass full person, Peter, but talking to you, I just sound nothing but negative. But for me, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult because we already got quite a good agreement out of the phase one agreement with India. 
now we're really getting into some of the hard stuff. And India's history of trade negotiations for the past how long? 75 years has been not to be particularly ambitious. So we'll see. I'm open-minded. I hate thinking that I'm too negative on these things. But, yeah, so for me, UAE and India phase two. But I agree. I think Pacific's going to be fascinating and Southeast Asia, similarly fascinating areas for work next year. So just on the UAE, I think beyond the UAE is Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council. That's just proven too difficult, but that's potentially the big prize beyond UAE. But otherwise, yes, yeah, it's not going to deliver all that, that much trade, investment maybe more. It's probably more significant for the UAE than it is for Australia, if we are honest. But India, I think, to give you some more reasons for optimism, if I look at their dance card and who they're negotiating with, so the UK, Canada, the EU, they clearly want closer trade relations with significant Western economies. And to get those closer trade relations, they know they are going to have to deliver in things like services behind the border regulations and so on. And the Modi government has been something of an economic reformer administration. It's been patchy for sure, but that's been by and large their overall trajectory. So, you know, if you're going to conclude a substantial services come regulatory deal with a Western economy, why not start with an economy like Australia? which is not as threatening, certainly, as the EU, the UK, and, and Canada. So to the extent that they're significant about forging those Western trade relations, I would be more optimistic than pessimistic that we'll get something. <laughs> the question is, what's the something? Well, I'm pleased to hear it, because I hope we get something. That would be that would be great. So just to finish... On, on two absolutely massive topics, but, you know, we, we try to be succinct at Trade Policy Decoded. So climate change has been a huge topic this year. It's really touched so many different areas of Australia's and global trade policy and trade negotiations. So I think Australia started with its green economy agreement with Singapore. We've seen IPEF include climate change provisions in its negotiations. And for the first time at COP28, we've seen trade a focus for discussions there. What do you think of the evolution of climate change and trade this year, Peter? What are your thoughts? So a couple of things. I think, first of all, we shouldn't forget that the EU concluded a free trade agreement with New Zealand that included a significant sustainability chapter in which both parties reaffirmed and committed to binding dispute resolution vis-a-vis -vis their Paris Agreement commitments. So that was significant. Whether Australia would sign up to that is an interesting question, but of course that's been kicked into touch for the foreseeable future. By the way, recently Kenya and the EU, so Kenya, a developing country, concluded a similar chapter in their economic partnership agreement, as they're called in the EU-Africa context. So, so something's shifting in the EU's FTA space. They are getting countries to sign up to substantial climate commitments, or at least climate commitments they've made in the Paris Agreement context. And then when it came to the COP summit, 
I think what was significant is that for the first time, the WTO was involved in organizing a one-day trade and climate event. If you've been to WTO meetings in Geneva in the past, you would have seen the organization had significantly evolved into the environment space. So they're not ignoring it, but they're, they're looking for purchase. What is the WTO's role in delivering climate-friendly trade provisions? And that's what this one-day session focused on. So I think in terms of bringing two quite disparate and often conflicting communities together, that was a significant achievement at COP. What will emerge from it, we'll have to wait and see. It needs time to percolate, obviously, but I suspect it's going to feed into the Abu Dhabi ministerial conference. The trade minister certainly will want to follow up and talk about that. So I expect to see more in that space, but quite what the more is, I'm not sure yet. Yes. Again, another topic that we'll watch closely in 2024, I think, and, and CBAMs, obviously, the EU have implemented theirs. They're in their pilot phase. The UK are pushing ahead. China has said they're looking to introduce the CBAM next year. And I think you mentioned Vietnam too. Yes. Hmm. We're looking to introduce it. So, of course, Australia's looking at its own CBAM. Yes, so that's certainly something to watch next year, the review of carbon leakage uh, led by Professor Frank Jotzer at ANU. So that will report during the course of next year, and we'll see a lot of conversation about should Australia implement a CBAM? If so, what should it look like? What are the implications for the economy, for our regional trade relations, and a range of other things? So it's potentially very significant. But of course, it's just a review. Government can accept the findings or reject them. So it'll be interesting to see how the government reacts to Professor Jotso's findings. Mm. The Minister for Climate Change, Chris Bowen, has seemed to indicate support for a CBAM. So we'll see what the review has to say and how the government responds to it. But the potential for a huge CBAM mess globally is so real. And I think 2024 will tell us how messy that mess will be. Indeed, indeed. I expect to see challenges to the EU CBAM too, but not in 2024. That'll happen more around 2026, because right now it's in a pilot phase, right? So not biting yet. That'll happen in 2026. Something to look forward to. Indeed, yes. And to end on a truly negative note, and highlighting again that theme of uncertainty, so we have war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East. As we speak, Ships are being held up in the Red Sea, impacting global supply chains. What do you think of this ending for the year? Yeah, I think it's all part of that broader geopolitical narrative because, you know, why are the Houthis lobbing missiles and drones at Israeli-flagged or linked ships in the Red Sea, even in that very narrow strait, which is known as the Strait of Tears, the Bab al-Mandar Strait? It's because of the... Israel-Gaza conflict, and of course the U.S. supporting Israel uh, conditionally, it has to be said, but in, in that conflict, the Iranians are backing the Houthis and clearly don't support Israel. And for the Iranians, this is a bit of a gift in a way. It's like a valve that they can open or close to put pressure on, I guess, what they regard as Western-linked shipping. Right, So through the Suez Canal in particular, it's the Europe-Asia trade that's particularly affected in Australia at the margin. It's really less dependent on it. I think one of the ironies of this is that 
China, and most of those impacts will be on China because that's bulk of Europe-Asia trade, has come out very strongly in support of the Palestinians and against Israel. And there was this article in the Global Times overnight, which was crowing about Australia not sending a ship as part of this US-led coalition to constrain the Houthis and the impact of their military actions on shipping in the area. And the Global Times is basically saying, yes, you see Australia's departing the US-led coalition, there's cracks appearing, this is good, this is great. And I read this and I thought, well, actually, it's your shipping that's affected. <laughs> this seems ironic to me. So it's a very strange situation. I wouldn't overstate the direct impacts on prices. I think there will be some through supply chain effects. But as far as Australians are concerned, I think they're likely to be relatively limited, depending how long this continues for and how long those shipping flows are disrupted for. So our Christmas puddings shouldn't be that much more expensive? <laughs> no, no, I think they're already in the air or on the, on the sea. <laughs> Superb. It's good to know. Well, there's a positive note to end on. It's been an incredible year. Thank you so much, Peter. I've enjoyed recording these sessions of Trade Policy Decoded. And we hope those of you who listen to us enjoy our friendly banter on what we think are important topics for Australian trade policy and global trade policy. So thank you so much. Can I wish you just the merriest of Christmases and an incredibly happy new year, Peter? Oh, thank you very much, Prue. And uh, likewise, I've enjoyed our banter. I think it's always interesting and illuminating. And hopefully our readership thinks the same. And to them and to you, best wishes for the festive season and the new year to come. And we'll be back in the new year with this previews of what's on the international trade agenda going into 2024. Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.